it's only natural for the public to say, what's going on here? What are these people doing? You know, we elect them, we give them power in good faith, and then look at the results. University of Ottawa's Institute for Science, Society and Policy. This is Disruption Discovered, a show about the forces that are reshaping the 21st century and the people who spend their days thinking about them. Welcome, I'm Brendan Frank. We live in an era of information abundance. Knowledge generation is happening faster than ever before, but the uptake of that knowledge by the public and decision makers does not always follow at the same pace. The gap between how much societies and governments know and how much they can act upon, is constantly on the move. The use of misinformation and disinformation is on the rise, while public trust is in decline. On this show, we'll be talking a lot about subjects where the state of knowledge is rapidly evolving. So how do we know something is true? And how do we operationalize that knowledge once we know it's true? For our first episode, we'll start by asking, how do societies actually know things? And how should they go about making informed, science-based decisions? Here to discuss is Dr. Mark Sonner, a professor here at U Ottawa and chair of its Department of Geography, Environment and Geomatics. He was the inaugural director here at the Institute for Science, Society and Policy, and he now leads our research on science advice. We are thrilled to have him as our first guest. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Brenton. Happy to be here. So we're seeing the exponential growth of misinformation and disinformation, social media, junk science, political spin. How do we know something is true? Thank you. Yeah, that's a big question. It's, of course, a, an ancient question. Going back in, t- in time before um, the internet, the, a lot of knowledge was consolidated in, in minds that were often their, their character or their competence was known. And it was a little bit easier to, to almost a priori decide uh, who to listen to and, and how to filter the information. Now everyone has a microphone, so to speak, to the entire planet. And uh, so it's more work now to, to arbitrate. I also wonder if we should maybe discuss even another issue, and that is how to get attention. Because I think in the past, before the internet, those who deserve to be trusted, or those people just wanted to trust because of ideology, they um, they got the attention. And now, before we say what is, you know, how do we know it's true, is who do we pay attention to? And who we pay attention to is partly a function of who's the loudest, but it's also a function of who we trust. And for decision makers to discern what is true and what is not, they need to trust and rely on the expertise of others. It's this group project, and without trust, it all disintegrates. Yeah, that is true. So when you, I would say there are a lot of mechanisms in place precisely designed you know, to legitimize uh, decisions or, or, in a sense, further trust. So I, I think it's fair to say that uh, say our democratic system, our, you know, especially the first past the post system has a lot to do with giving power to those we trust. You know, we, we try to elect people not just on function or ideology or ideas, but also on competence and trust. So you have with our polit- um, political representatives, you have a method, a mechanism by which the trust gets legitimized. But trust is ancient. You know, the people always needed knowledge, uh, no matter what the complexity of your society is, even if it's a tiny village in a forest. You need to understand who to trust. It's a human problem. So we are good at it, actually. I think we even have good gut instincts for trust. 
And yet trust is in decline in the Western world. We don't trust our institutions. We don't trust our politicians. Increasingly, we don't trust experts. So trust, trust is a human instinct, and yet we don't trust the systems that allow us to flourish as a modern society. Yeah, well, that's true. And I mean, that is a, a pretty complex diagnosis, you know, to... I, I would say um, one of the issues has actually to do with performance. We have, um, like, if you look at, at Canada, you know, we have, we have to deal with climate change. The um, approaches, you know, our failure to, to meet our own promises for Kyoto, Paris, etc. We feel we are failing on our commitments. We don't see clear solutions. Uh, we don't feel we have the money to do endless research. We all have deficits and debt. We have all kinds of issues. And so it's only natural for the public to say, what's going on here? What are these people doing? You know, we elect them, we give them power in good faith, and then look at the results. <laughs> and, and so that's, I think that is a factor. I think if things are growing merrily, the trust problem gets lessened. Second huge factor, of course, is just the internet and the and the enormous interest in misinformation going back to propaganda. And you know, it's really an outcome of Sigmund Freud's research into psychology, the first legitimate usage of propaganda and the advertisement, and increasingly illegitimate after propaganda became a bad word. I mean, that that one hundred years of history has also, I think, strained our relationships. But even if you satisfy both of those conditions, quality knowledge from a trustworthy source, there are still real limitations to what we can do with that knowledge. Well, that is true. Uh, that has to do um, <laughs> with the various factors. There is the abundance of knowledge, just the quantity and uh, the uptake, that, uptake problems that come with it. And there's also the diversity of knowledge. We have an interest in including diverse knowledges, a good example is indigenous knowledge, there are other forms of neglected insights. So I, the diversity makes it a bit more complex, but I actually think the quantity is the main issue. Uptake is hard, and then implementation of knowledge is even harder. So when you hear someone say, I know something, I know something happened, I witnessed a crime, for example, we don't know that our memories are true, we are trusting that our memories are true that we are reliable narrators, but that trust is often misplaced. This is a bit personal, you know, but I have to think of two, two things that I stored in my memory just based on what I have been exposed to. One is a, a quite well-known movie by Akira Kurosawa called Rashomon, which is a, a crime that happened and witnessed by multiple witnesses. And the judge who has to arbitrate on what actually happened is exposed to different accounts which are all credible and believed by the witnesses, they're not lies, they're just different perceptions, different vantage points. Even with best intentions and honesty in your pocket, which is a great, a great foundation, even then you have issues with what is true. And maybe the second thing I, I want to mention is, is a, a book I, I quite adore, it's called uh, Difficult Conversations. In that book, the advice on how to deal with a conflict is the number one thing you have to do is to establish what people thought actually happened and led to the conflict. So when you have a personal conflict, the first thing you have to establish is diverging perceptions, perspectives on truth. We have increasingly, we are dealing with topics which are so complex where it's not even reasonable to ask non-insiders for a perspective because it's just 
impossible to you know to really really understand modern biotechnology or whatever and so then the the question is not so much is you know does Monsanto speak the truth or does the ETC group speak the truth the issue is actually more for the grand public it's not so much what is true it's more what you want because what is true you know what you actually should do on a detail is like the wrong question it is an unfair question and it's also true when we say we we know things that that information may be outdated one example I can think of is the comp- the personal computer of the 1980s bears almost no resemblance to the modern computer in 2020. They perform the same core function, but for the purposes of explaining, they may as well not be the same thing. I mean, there's, there's actually a technical term that we use in regulation of emerging technologies. It's called the pacing problem. The innovations outpace the capabilities of lawmakers, um, administrators, implementers, and certainly the public at large. Uh, but also the judges, all systems that matter in politics, all outpaced, all overwhelmed. So that is, a, I think, a, a clear issue. It, it has to do with Moore's law. And since you mentioned computers that fits well, so Moore, former CEO of IBM, said that the, the capacity of microchips will, will double, I think, every two years. This exponential growth is not really what is natural in the world you know evolution i think has not prepared us for exponential growth so it's only natural that we will be baffled by what comes around the corner so when we think about moore's law and the pacing problem and the problem of vantage points how do we reconcile all this how do we how do we take the exponential growth of scientific knowledge and put it to use for societies how do we make good decisions with that knowledge or better decisions is maybe a better way to put it before thinking on how to make a decision, one should think about how to ask the right question. If I ask a question such as, is modern biotechnology safe? That question is really unanswerable. That's like saying, is chemistry safe? Well, it really depends, you know. It depends how you use it. It depends. I mean, there's certainly agreement that uh, chemical warfare is very unsafe, while um, maybe the lining in, in plastic lining in your water bottle is, is maybe more safe than you might think. So the question is is borderline nonsensical, but it's very easily asked. And it's actually a reasonable question. I'm not faulting the public for asking that question. But I would say those who have um, some power for, of decision-making should be very focused on the right question and then finding the right audience. And that then once that is done, that first step, I think the quality of decisions will actually go up. Of course, you can talk about how to create more competence, more ability to digest the system. You could easily say, oh, yeah, with this knowledge growth, we need more universities, more experts. We need a greater library of parliament. We need more employees in the public service. We need more, more, more to deal with all this knowledge. You could certainly say that. But I I actually think we can gain more by giving people the right task, you know, by giving the political system of the right assignment and then let people solve the issue of what to choose based on a better understanding of where we head. So the challenge facing decision makers is cutting through the noise and asking the right questions. But we often ask the wrong questions. And on top of that, science is, is fallible and it's constantly updating and improving itself. Is that, a, is that a problem for public trust in science? It depends a bit on timing, you know. But sometimes the correction is too slow, and that becomes a tangible problem. 
You know, you, you have the right answer, but it's too late. You should have known it much earlier. I would say that's a, a certain weakness of science is to be in sync. But I don't think we can solve it by shortcuts. I do not think the public has a problem with scientists being very skeptical about their own science. I think they see this as a virtue. But there is another group of people involved in this discussion, and I call them the observer of the natural sciences. So one discipline, for example, is science and technology studies or science, technology and society as, as a subject matter. And there is a second level of doubt. The doubt is not so much, is it true what we just saw? The doubt is more, are you, you know, the scientific technological enterprise? Are you free of corruption? Are you mature? Do you understand that your expertise is causing problems? Do you understand that your self-interest, your careers are causing problems? And these commentators, which have to exist, they're very important, but they have a grave responsibility not to totally destroy the trust in the scientific system. And I think they know it, but it's a fine line to walk. You just put up an endless list, you know, of reasons of why the scientific technological system might be biased in dangerous ways, you know, where the funding is from, how the people are trained. And you may also sometimes not care enough. They will say, it is just not good enough for scientists to say, we are just a bunch of geeks and that's our job. And we don't have any rights nor any responsibility to worry about what comes in the future. The future is unknowable anyway. Have a nice day. And they will say that's insufficient. There has to be something like responsible innovation, responsible knowledge seeking. So on the topic of responsible knowledge seeking, there is the question of knowledge that we are capable of seeking, but perhaps shouldn't, or knowledge that we have acquired that we perhaps shouldn't act upon. How do we deal with those challenges? Yeah, that is actually an issue which is coming up more often. You know, high-level journals like Science and Nature have, have been challenged, you know, on what to publish. So, for example, uh, there has been a team of um, Canadians who were involved looking into how to genetically engineer pox, smallpox, or there's also a case on how to uh, create opiates in, uh, from fermentation in a lab. But if it were a simple cookbook on how to do morphine, uh, make morphine at home in your garage for low price, if that were the case, then the journal really has to think if they should publish it. And the granting agencies should maybe think earlier if they should promote and fund this research. So there is, I do think, um, an increasing issue as science and technology becomes more powerful to uh, start to talk about self-censorship. But it's not entirely new. And I, I'm in favor of early debate. I'm in favor of thinking long and hard in which direction we seek. And this is absolutely a question we're going to return to in, in future episodes on the subjects of AI and medicine. But those firewalls you described, if nature or science were to question whether it's appropriate to publish, whether it's responsible to publish a paper on those subjects, and yet those firewalls aren't up everywhere in the scientific community. You mentioned homemade opiates, but if you look at the case of Purdue Pharma, for example, promoting the use of opiates for pain for patients who didn't really need it, and that slipped by largely undetected until 10 years after the fact. That's a great study in how experts work together in an insufficiently self-critical way. Sometimes they don't have the time and sometimes they don't have the power to express their discomfort. So bringing this back up to a higher level to close, 
deciding what is good information, bad information, what is knowledge, what is responsible knowledge, how can Canada think about doing better when it comes to when it comes to giving good advice and actually acting on that advice? Culturally, we are quite well placed to to um, you know, create good knowledge. We have been criticizing ourselves forever to not translate the knowledge well into utility for Canada and benefits for Canadians. That's a very difficult question, which I do think has actually a cultural element, but it has many other elements. Our proximity to the United States makes our situation really special that way. So I would say, you know, my, my wish list for Canada would be keep on learning from other places. I think we do this pretty well. You know, if something interesting happens in New Zealand, Australia, or the UK, or the US, and in other places, we I think our policymakers usually pick up on it. I th- think we have a, a decent so-called ecosystem of, of advice. I think it should be strengthened, but I don't think it's very bad. I think we're on a good path there. Is that a question of getting more experts or a question of better connecting experts to decision makers or both? Yeah, <laughs> I think we have a greater interest in making our experts more effective by connecting them better than having more. But how to do that is is really non-trivial. You know, to become more effective in using expertise, you also have to have uptake capacity. I have one wish, though. I On the topic, you know, where to strengthen... Uh, I think our weakness is perhaps greater in um, in the social sciences, even in the humanities than in the natural sciences, because we do not have a lot of experts on, let's say, innovation policy that work in academic settings, because it would create um, a connection between the expertise in the natural sciences and in engineering and, and the uptake capability by the decision makers. Dr. Mark Sonner, thank you very much. Thank you, Brent. My pleasure. Converting data and information into knowledge is complicated. Acting on and applying that knowledge is harder still. Canada is well positioned to apply its own science and the science of other nations to improve societal and policy outcomes. But we can still do more to reduce the friction in the system and better navigate disruption. Expanding our focus to include the social sciences and diverse and neglected forms of knowledge can help ensure responsible knowledge seeking and enhance trust in our institutions. How do we know something is true is a complicated question. And it's a question we must keep asking. Disruption Discovered is produced by Alicia Aziz, Eric Cinnamon, Raphael Desordi, and myself, Brendan Frank. Our composer is Jackson Palmer. Special thanks to Jason Blackstock, Mark Sonner, Monica Gattinger, Jonathan Deegan, and the University of Ottawa Library. For more information on the Institute for Science, Society, and Policy, you can visit our website at issp.uottawa.ca. Thanks for listening.